Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter, if you would, please. Let's continue our study. Hope leads to holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13-16. Last week we learned that we should express gratitude, be encouraged, and faithful because we are privileged to be the recipients of God's great mercy of salvation. Believers are blessed to live in a time in which the predictions of the prophets have come to pass As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 13, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In today's passage, Peter continues with the responsibility of Christians in a world hostile to our faith. Thomas Thomas Schreiner notes that because of the inheritance and salvation believers anticipate, they should set their hope completely in Christ's coming and devote themselves to holiness. Privilege comes with responsibility. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 13-16 together. You silently as I read out loud. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, these are daunting words for sure. This is something that if we were to set and consider, can we be holy? I think most of us would say no. But Father, open up our minds and hearts. Let our hearts not be closed, but let it be open to the Holy Spirit. Let us listen to your word. Let us differentiate between man's opinion and conjecture, but just focus on your word that you may show us, revealed by your Holy Spirit, what you want each of us to do this morning. As we are faithful to your word, we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Peter now is going to give several commands that list the responsibility of the privileged elect. As we saw last week, privilege leads to responsibility. As those that have been elected by God and exiled in a world hostile to our faith, it is incumbent for the believer to live the life of an ambassador. That's what you and I are called. We are called to live life of ambassadors. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors sharing the gospel, saying, be reconciled with God. We are the bearers of the good news, not only in our voice, but also in our actions, in our interactions with people. In this passage, Peter gives us a command that we're going to look at this morning. The command there is found in verse 13, where he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. He's saying that there is a a future grace, as we've been looking at 1 through 13, that's the therefore. 
because of that future grace, that salvation, that inheritance that is undefiled, that is imperishable, and also that is unfading, he says, because of this that's going to be revealed to you, you need to set your hope fully on that hope. As we've seen early in our study of this letter, we recognize that our salvation has both a past and a present reality, but it also has a future element. The promise of Scripture is that Jesus will appear a second time. We call that his return, the second advent, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. At that time, God promises to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. He promises that the former things have passed away. He promises to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. These promises are our hope, and we saw that our hope is not baseless, but it's set upon the fact that Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead and now reigns with God and is coming back as he prepares a place for us. This is a wonderful promise. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this promise is something that the church and we as believers ought to hold on to. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica about Christ's return. It's there in verse 13. We'll start. Paul says, But I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Let me share with you, as Christians, when a Christian dies, we have a different way of handling that. We must understand our grief is different. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those that have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you for, by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, he promises. Then he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. But verse 18, underline that if you're there. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Set your hope fully on the hope that we have on our future grace. God understands that believers will be tempted to be discouraged, desperate, and even despair. He understands the effect that sin plays in the life of the believer. He understands our struggles that we face in this world. Scripture tells us that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, the writer of Hebrew commands that we must then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to for help in time of need. God has given us an unshakable hope in Christ. And we are to fix our hope completely on what Christ has done for us. So this morning, what is your hope set on? Is it on a career? <coughs> Is it on a salary? Is it on a relationship? Is it in some type of other type of thing? That hope, that hope is baseless. Fix it on the full hope 
Thomas Schreiner writes again, how should our lives or how we should live our lives is based on what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, if you've received the gospel, if you're here today and you've accepted Christ, your life should be marked differently than that from the world, beginning with what you hope in, what your joy is in, how you respond in difficult times. So the hope that we are to fix our eyes on is that God will sustain us until that day that Jesus returns. Paul encourages Titus with these words when he says, The grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present world, waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, pure, who, who redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify himself of people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That encapsulates what our lives should be today. Zealous for good works. Looking and waiting eagerly for Christ's return. Peter then echoes the words of Paul and Titus by telling them to set their hope on the future grace by preparing their minds for action and being sober-minded. That's how he starts off that verse. Prepare your minds. Peter knows that to live out our new hope and identity in Christ will require self-discipline and self-control that begins with our mind and our thought processes. The phrase preparing your mind is translated in the King James Version as gird up the loins of your mind. And that paints a helpful word picture. The phrase, gird your loins, brings to remembrance God's instructions on the night of the first Passover in which we kind of celebrated here, remembered. When the angel of death visited Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, for God said, in this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Could you imagine going to dinner with all of those things? And you shall eat it, he says, in haste. Why? The Israelites were to eat the, meat, the meal ready to go at any time. Now, this phrase, to gird up your lines or to prepare your minds, it means to pull up the loose ends or the gathering of the robes so one can be ready for action. Bring your attention to the monitor. I, I was going to bring a robe and try to do this for you, but I thought, you know what? This is way too complicated. You could see a man in that time, he would be, wear a robe. Very difficult to go to fight, to go into action to fight. So you can see there, I don't think you can read it, but you can kind of see the actions. He would have to pull it up, and then he'd pull it in the front, and then back behind his, between his legs, and then back up around, and he would tie it. And that way he was girding up his loins, almost making it almost like a, a shorts-type thing so he could go into battle or to move. You can imagine today you can't move very quickly in a robe of that sort. But that's what he's saying there when he says, prepare your minds and say, gird up your loins. He's bringing a word picture. You've got to be ready and you've got to gather up those loose ends. Peter is using this phrase as a metaphor for our minds. We are to prepare our minds for action against the attack of the enemy. Paul informs the Corinthian, uh, Corinthian Christians that we are to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, you and I are to gather the loose ends of our thoughts, those stray moments where our minds wander. We need to catch those stray moments when Satan attempts to plant temptation or to plant doubt and fear. 
and so on and so forth. It's in those stray moments, in those moments when in our unguarded moments. So Peter is saying here, listen, if you're going to set your hope fully, then you need to have your mind set. You need to have self-control. You should not let your mind wander. You should not come to the place. You need to gather up those loose ends. Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, goes on to say the same thing as Peter does in Ephesians and Colossians. In Ephesians chapter 6, familiar verse, he says, Stand therefore, having your belt fasted, the belt of truth. In Galatians, he says, set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. So today, as you set your hope on the things above, to do so means you must prepare your mind. You must gather up. You must be self-disciplined and self-controlled. Hence why when we talk about meditation, meditation for many people is a clearing of the mind. So that anything else can come in, but that's not scripture. What has David said? No, meditate on what? God's word. We fill our minds with God's word, not just emptiness. I think that's some of the things that you and I do today. I can't remember the quote, but it's something to the point, the fact that Satan doesn't really need to do anything. He just needs to keep you busy or busily entertained. Why? Because everything is filling up your mind, right? We sit in front of the TV and the iPad and the phone and the radio and everything else, and we're just letting all this go in our mind. G-I-G-O. Remember, remember that, computer people? Garbage in, garbage out. And sometimes we need to be careful because we are entertaining ourselves to death. I think someone said that. I'm not sure who that was. Entertaining ourselves to death. And we are. We're not preparing our mind. Why are we having Christians falling and not uh, in despair or apostatizing. Because we're not preparing our minds. We're filling it up with all sorts of stuff that is not godly, that is not pure. When Peter writes that we're to be sober-minded, he's not necessarily talking about drinking and things of that man. He means that we're to have the clarity of mind and moral decisiveness. And I think that's important for us to understand. It means more than being of your own faculty, but having moral decisiveness. James warns that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's why Peter says we must fully set our hope on God, not hope in, in God and say, oh, well, I hope it comes in the a, in a form of a, boy, you know, a, a young man, a young woman that will make my life complete, or this job, or this career, or these skills, or this retirement, and this entertainment. In many ways, we are double-minded Christians. Yes, we want to love God, we want to trust God, but yet we're never fully set on Him. We must understand, and I get this, we must understand that the battle is in the mind. Satan strives to rob us of our hope. That is his full desires. He has many tricks and many devices. Scripture tells us, though, that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his, of his designs. The Scripture has given us what he attempts to do. Understanding that Satan attacks our hope, Paul warns us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your fight is not with your spouse. It is not with your college teacher. It is not with your boss. It is not with your children. It is not with the Republican or Democratic Party. It is not among any of those things. Amen? But it's against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. He goes on to instruct the believers to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and to keep alert with all perseverance. Jesus commanded that we're to love the Lord our God with all our soul and with all our heart and with all our mind. However, we know that our default position as children of disobedience is that we were once alienated and hostile in mind, Scripture says. Doing evil deeds. The Scripture tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is where the gospel comes in. Here's the good news. Law tells us that we, are, we, are, we do not measure up. As we were reading the law just a little bit ago, we saw that we do not measure up. But the gospel comes in, amen, and helps us through the work of Christ. We now have a new mind. Our mind is no longer hostile to God. If the mind still needs training, Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, we see here Christians, as Christians, we need to continually to renew our mind. We need to recognize that within us is still this old body of flesh that wars against our new mind. Those old habits, those old ways of thinking that still reside. In Romans chapter 12, look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reason to worship. This is a familiar verse to many. But verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but look at this, but be transformed by the what? Renewal of your mind. That's something that continually has to happen. That by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and is acceptable and perfect. This is what it means to prepare your mind. Now, this is not easy. You and I have been hardwired and sin-wired our whole lives to please ourselves. Scripture describes our life before Christ as living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. That was our default position. We did all that we can to consume these things. And that old body of sin does not go away easily. Martin Lloyd Joins, a British preacher, describes the battle of sin as an old dog who continually barks for you to come and play with him. In this description, Satan is an old dog who pressures you to forsake your new identity in Christ so that you may enjoy the pleasures he promises. Yet Peter goes on to give us a warning about this temptation. So prepare your minds. Why? So that we can set our hope fully, that we not be double-minded. But here's a warning in verse 14. Peter, understanding what type of people we are, he gives a warning. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This phrase reflects a new identity that is in stark contrast with our old identity. This command is simply a call to remember whose child you are. Peter is telling his readers that the proper response to the promise of salvation is to forsake all our old ways. Our lives as elect exiles means that we should live our lives differently than from before. He calls them to remember that they have been ransomed from their futile ways. In addition, he warns them not to be conformed to their old pattern of life. 
He calls them to remember who they were before Christ. Now, Scripture paints a very ugly picture of our life before Christ. In Titus, we see we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days away in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Ephesians says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. Because of this, we could not inherit eternal life. We were designated as children of wrath and vessels of wrath. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that the believers of, of the unbelievers, that in their case, the God of this world has blinded them, uh, blinded the minds of believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yet, in God's mercy, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Peter calls his readers, therefore, to live as obedient children of God. Scripture echoes Peter's warning when Paul writes to the Ephesians, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. To the Philippians, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the calling to which you've been called, or the gospel of Christ. In the Old Testament, Micah observes that all people walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of our Lord God forever and ever. In other words, does your life mark you out as one of God's children? Whose children are you? Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you're children of the devil. For he is a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. And he said, if you're lying, you're a child of the devil. And so I ask you, whose child are you, are, do, you look, do, you, do you look to? Or whose child, um, I'm losing my words here at this point, which child, what type of child are you? Go get it. Don't go off your notes. Well, Paul reminds the carnal Corinthians that struggled with this very issue. We're not the first church to do so. We're not the first people. This has happened from the very moment, day of Pentecost. And this church was so carnal that Paul wrote them, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the sexual immoral and idolaters, adulterers, men who practice such things, homosexuality or thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers? He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this phrase is, remember, because then he goes on to say, but such were some of you, but now you've been sanctified. In other words, do not go back. Do not be like the dog who goes back to his vomit. Do not go back as ignorant. Do not remember where you came from. Paul, Paul or Peter, excuse me, warns us that as children of God, we must model our Father. We are to model our lives after God, very much like children model the actions, the desires, and characters of their parents. Paul tells the believers in Ephesus to be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like your father. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So may God give us grace as we commit to living a life that reflects his glorious salt and light of the earth. As we set our hope fully on the grace that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do so, we must prepare our minds for action, gathering up the loose ends. Let us not forget who we once were, 
recognize that the default position is so easy to go to. Now, Peter now moves in verse 15 and 16 to base the command and warning on a principle. Again, I've always told you that there's a precept, there's a command of God, and the thou shalt, and there's always followed by a principle that points to the person, a revelation of Christ. In this case, in verse 16 or 15, he says, But as he who has called you holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Here he is telling us that instead of conforming to the world's standards, as we want to go back to, we are to follow the standards of God. We have something different to follow now. We are now able to do what we could not before when our minds were hostile to God. We now have a mind that is warming to God that has tasted and seen that God is good, that now loves God. The principle of why we set our hope on the future grace is that we are to be holy because God is holy. Remember the precepts, the commands of Scripture are always grounded in a principle and in the person of of God. In Isaiah 6, we get an inside glimpse of the throne room of God in heaven. When Isaiah describes a moment when he was given a wonderful, uh, intimate vision of heaven. In that vision, Isaiah describes the seraphim, the angels, as special angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now what's interesting about this character, at least to me, is how many times they sing the word holy. Scripture is full of revelation about the person of God. It describes his beauty, his majesty, his character. The Bible tells us that God is good, that he's faithful, that he's loving, kind, gentle, strong, mighty, majestic. All of these things and so much more. But it's only of his holiness do we read of it as holy, holy, holy. We never read God as love, 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 or gentle, gentle, gentle. Majestic, majesty, majesty, majesty. But he's holy. Holy, holy. I think what we're seeing in this glimpse is we're seeing the very essence of God. Who he is in his very core. Since we are children of God, we too are to be holy. We are to reflect the holiness of our Father. Pastor John MacArthur writes, Holiness, listen to this please, essentially defines the Christian's new nature and conduct in contrast with his pre-salvation lifestyle. The reason for practicing a holy manner of living is that that Christians are associated with the holy God and must treat him and his word with respect and reverence. We therefore glorify him best by being like him. As Peter has done several times, he likens us to the nation of Israel and how they too were called out to be holy. Their holiness was demonstrated in that they were to be separate from the nations around them. Their lifestyles would be different than the world. God called them out to be different so that the world may see him through them. The Holy Spirit warns us that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eye, and pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. So the warning is, do not go to those things. The Jews of Israel were to be separated in their diet, in their clothing, in their housing, and even in their intimate moments. This is pointed out in several passages in Leviticus where he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 
To Moses, he says, speak to the congregation and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Goes on, you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Like Israel, we have been called out to be separated from the world. This separation, this separation, this call to holiness was meant to point out the children, uh, point out the children of God and serve as a witness to other nations. This was a very difficult calling. It would not be an easy way to live for the Jewish people. It meant sacrifice and suffering as they were attacked, mocked, and dispersed among the nations. Pastor, pastor Scott Bashore, a pastor here in Buena Park, he wrote that hope in Christ's future's grace leads to practical holiness. Well, Pastor John Piper writes that the world does not listen to this. And I think this is where many churches and many Christians think that we need to get to. He writes that the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. Let me say that once again. He writes that the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. We don't need churches where they have to have the right haircut and the right type of thing. The pulpit's gone and just a podium with smoke going all over. Now, is there anything wrong with all those things? No, I don't want to say that. But our job is not to be that cool Christian. What he says, rather, what the Christian world, the world needs is, listen to this, this is powerful. He says it needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. All he's echoing is 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we're a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance of life to life. Let me share with you, in your Christian life, you will be marked differently. You will make decisions in your giving, the way you spend your money, in your relationships, in the, maybe even the way you dress, in the way you entertain yourself, the way you respond to things that will mark you out differently. And many times that will mark you out for ridicule or, or disparaging remarks. The joy we demonstrate in suffering our obedience to the commands of God, and our hope for a future salvation will stand in stark contrast to the world. Their happiness is fleeting. The world is ignorance. Their ignorance is condemning, and their hope is baseless. Christians alone through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit are the means in which God offers true and final reconciliation. So he calls us to set our hope fully on the future grace that will be revealed when Christ returns. In the meantime, to do that, prepare your minds, gather up the loose ends, and be thinking of Christ, retrain your mind. In the same way, be holy. Do not go back to your way of living. Now, that's what he tells us. Now I want to get to what that means to you and I. Because this is easy to preach and easy to teach, but I'm going to tell you, this is very hard to live out. So here's two concerns that I'd like to share. One, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? All of us probably have things from our backgrounds, things that we grow up that says, well, this is what holy means. Well, the word holy means sacred, to be set apart, to be devoted to God. This would include things like the sanctuary that the Israelites would build, the temple that Solomon would build. 
its furnishings, the furniture and things inside, and even the nation of Israel, they were holy. They were separated. They were set apart and devoted to God. When it refers to people, it carries the meaning of being pure, of also being set apart, of being sacred, hence why we are called saints. This now can be very daunting and intimidating when you think of it. I think back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he says, You therefore must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Who can measure up to that? Where is there hope for holiness if perfection is the standard? As a Christian, I've become even more sensitive to the sin in my life. In all the small ways, I do not measure up to God's moral law that we read earlier. Especially when Jesus points out that it's not just the actions that are sinful, but also our thoughts. Lustful thoughts are now adultery. Anger itself is murder. Covetousness is stealing and complaining about God. I find myself in despair just at the thought, how could I ever measure up to God's perfection? Paul himself lamented, I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my mind, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I join with the Apostle Paul who cried, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Many of you today may have similar thoughts. You may be saying, I don't look like a Christian. I don't act like a Christian. I struggle in thinking like a Christian. I don't know how to, and just fill in the blank, as a Christian. I just don't fit in. My body is filled with tattoos. I have piercings. My language is still a little bit salty. And yeah, I like to take a drink here and there. And hey, it's California. Every once in a while to relax, I toke a little marijuana. Maybe I smoke. I struggle with that. And you say, I love God, but there's no way I can be holy. You may be even hearing you say, hey, I grew up in a church and a family, and I still can't be holy. I learned all those things. Let me share this. You're not alone. You're not alone. It is a sad chapter in many churches and denominations and pastors that we have made believers to feel this way. We have made rules, regulations, and standards very much like the Pharisees did in Christ's time to mark out what Christians look like, act like, dress like, and so on and so forth. Now at the core, I understand the impulse to do so. If I have a standard to go by a list of do's and don'ts, it actually makes it easier for me to gauge my spirituality, right? So if I do this, this must mean I'm holy, this must mean I'm right with God, because that's what we struggle with, right? Am I right with God? We struggle with that. And so, boy, rules and regulations are actually helpful. For example, growing up in a church with a Christian school, we were given a list of standards. Men's hair must be short meaning that it must be above the ear, above the eyebrow, and above the collar. We would have hair checks each week. Woman's hair must be much longer. Don't not let that go above the ear or past the collar. When we're not to wear pants. There was no listening to secular radio, including the Christian radio station. We cannot go to movies. There was no smoking, drinking, chewing, or going out with girls who do. We could go on and many more, and you could add some yourself. Let me state that, this right here. Those rules were not necessarily wrong, bad, or evil. They are just not necessarily right, good, or pure. 
They were honest attempts to draw some boundaries for Christians so that they may not fall into sin. I understand boundaries. We need boundaries. However, where it goes wrong is when those boundaries are the measurement of holiness or spiritual growth. So in other words, if I do these, this must mean that I'm holy and spiritual. That is not the case. The Pharisees did all the rules and even so much more. But Jesus himself said, listen, you are like tombs. You're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're filled with dead bones. So we need to be careful about these boundaries and these marks that we put. I followed all those rules, yet it did not make me holy, perfect, pure, or even godly. We can follow rules to the letter only to find ourselves just as lost as the person who refuses Christ. There is no salvation in rules nor spiritual power in them. As you look around this room this morning, you will see Christians who look and act differently than each other. Scripture calls us not to judge another man's servant, speaking of God, meaning that it is God that we must seek to please, not men. Standards are good and necessary, but they do not make one holy and pure. Yet at the same time, Peter is calling us to be holy. And Scripture points out that our lives must be different from the world. Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans 6. In this chapter, we read, uh, we read Paul teaching the Romans how to live their lives that are pleasing to God. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as righteousness or instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look at verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, leading to being more like Christ, leading to holiness, to being set apart. You know, I could stand here this morning and I could give you a list of things that you should and should not do. Lord knows I have my own opinions. If you were to ask me about tattoos piercings, marijuana, things. I have my opinion based on Scripture of what I believe God has called us to. But you know what? That's my conscience. And what God may call me to do, what I would do is I would point you to Scripture and encourage you to read, to learn, and pursue holiness as the Holy Spirit leads you. Everyone's journey in sanctification will be different. Be assured that Scripture does carry every or cover every area in your life and that God does expect you to be holy. Peter tells us in his second letter that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life 
and godliness. In his word, he will one day judge us according to his word. So those principles, those standards that are in there, we will one day give account for. Do not neglect the world, the word in dictating how you'll live your life. The key is, is what does God's word say? Not does what someone else say about the word, not what the world is doing. You know, there is probably much more I could and probably should say. I've kind of opened up a, 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 a Pandora's box here about holiness and the Christian, but time does not give me time, you have time to do so. So let me do say this. The scripture warns us about neglecting this pursuit. A Christian who is one who denies himself, who picks up his cross and follows Christ. A Christian is one who does have liberty in all things, as Paul says, but is also willing to surrender that liberty that God may be glorified and others drawn to him. So let me end with the second question. What do we do when we fail? Because if you're like me, my desire is to pursue holiness, but I fail. Well, we know first off that we cannot be fully holy. We will fail. We will struggle with sin our whole lives. So how do we respond? How can I hope that God will still expect me if I'm struggling in my holiness or maybe I just don't understand all of what holiness is? The answer is simple. The gospel covers us. Jesus provided what God requires. When Jesus pronounced that we must be perfect as the Father is perfect, he knew that we could not do this. So it was impossible, but yet, praise God, Jesus came to do for us. In Romans chapter 5, we don't have time to read through all of this, but Romans chapter 5, for the most part, tells us, by one man's sin did sin into the world, and all and death through sin. So all are guilty. But it says, in God's love, God came and sent his son and made Jesus sin for us. And with that, the penalty is, is satisfied. God is satisfied. His wrath is averted. But then not only that is that he gave us the righteousness. By one man's obedience, all became obedient who trust in him. For you and I, our holiness is not found in our actions. It's not even always thought in our thoughts, but it's found in the fact that Jesus provided what God required, that perfection. Now, are we to pursue holiness? Are we to pursue to imitate our Father? Yes. But we also must rest in the fact that Jesus has made us perfect. Because of this great work, Paul can now the Corinthians, even that carnal church who were struggling with sins, saints. He says, you are now called to be saints together. Called elect exiles who are saints. If I may, I would like to leave you with two practical applications. If you're here today and you've repented of your sins and you've turned and trusted in the works of Christ for salvation, you are one of God's precious children. Hold on to that truth. As one of God's children, we are commanded to set our hope fully on the future grace that will, that will be revealed and to conduct our lives as one that befits our Father in heaven. Charles Spurgeon gave this warning. He was the great Baptist preacher from England in the 19th century. He writes, true godliness demands self-denial. Let me say it again. True godliness demands self-denial and cross-bearing. If you have none of these, you are making a false profession. So pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness is the mark of a genuine Christian. First, here's the first application. 
knowing that the battle against sin and holiness and that our pursuit of holiness begins in the mind, hence why we prepare for gathering up those loose ends, knowing that is in the mind, you and I must learn to retrain our minds. Scripture gives us instructions on how to do this in Philippians chapter 4. Please uh, take your uh, eyes to the monitor and you'll see this. For he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Or if you want to pursue holiness, then bring this to bear. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. and The God of peace will be with you. Secondly, and I want you to grab this as well, and this is something that we can do here and together. We need to understand that you are not alone. Our pursuit of happiness is to be done in the context of community. We as a body of believers are to help one another in our journey in sanctification and pursuit of holiness. You don't have to figure it all out yourself. We don't want to make cookie cutter Christians, but we don't have to figure out, is this good? Is this holy? Is this right or is this wrong? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone, speaking of the church as a whole. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So here's the application. We have a responsibility to set our hope fully on the future grace of God, pursuing holiness as children of God. But you have a responsibility to help others pursue that gift or to pursue holiness. Let us not have anyone fail to obtain this holiness. For you and I, our brothers and sisters together. So as we prepare our minds, let's begin preparing each other. That's the strength in the church. That's the strength in the small groups and in the Sunday school as we're retraining our mind with the words of God and learning how to think biblically through these things that you and I are indenuated with, the things that we must struggle with, the things that just press upon us. Would you do so this morning? Closing verses found in Psalms 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Jacob, Selah. Let us seek after our Father. Let us imitate him and be his children. With every head bowed and every head closed, as the worship team makes their way up, it's time to pause, to consider, to pray, and respond to what the Holy Spirit may be calling you. If you're here this morning, you're a believer, you've accepted Jesus, I'd pray today that you commit to continuing in your journey in sanctification. Pray like David did. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. Gather the loose ends of your mind and be alert to Satan's attack. Uh, pursue holiness. Become involved with someone else in your, in, in your holiness and help them as in their walk. To those believers here that are struggling, would you rest in the promise of the gospel that God has accepted you? 
Retrain your mind to fight sin. If needed, seek help in developing good boundaries based on biblical principles to help you overcome your sin. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, would you call upon the Lord for salvation? Do not delay. God is calling you to repent of your dead works and trust in Him. Would you come running into His arms? For without Him, there is no hope. Would you take a moment to pause, to consider, and pray, and respond to the Holy Spirit's word? We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.